Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. We are tackling a topic today that is almost too difficult to tackle with words because it inherently is not about words, but about experience. So it's going to be a little tough, but today we're going to talk about mysticism. Um, To begin the discussion, we wanted to establish that there are mystical roots within our own faith tradition. Isn't that right, Christopher? Yes, starting with Joseph Smith, who was a mystic's mystic. For people who don't understand what you just said, why could you explain a little bit about why you said that? Why is he a mystic's mystic? Well, Joseph Smith was a true mystic in the sense that he had an experience of the divine that is beyond words. And interestingly, it, it has to be put into words to share. And yet... The words are not the experience, and he makes that very clear to us, at least in section 76, when it comes to the vision of the degrees of glory. He tells us, after telling us all about it, that he really has mostly told us about what he heard, not saw, and he later tells us that he could have told us so much more. And back in the, again, in section 76, he tells us that whatever you just read, whatever I just wrote, whatever I just said, isn't it. And it's interesting how that starts, too, because it's he's reading about the two uh, two kingdoms, right? Heaven and hell. That's it. And out of that comes this experience. And so it's, it's the experience, the mystical experience, mystic coming from the same root as mystery, which means to close the mouth. It's something that actually, or, or the eyes, something that, that doesn't, isn't necessarily seen. It's from the unseen world and that cannot be put into words. And I think he would have been completely at home in that understanding of how the divine reveals itself for people. I mean, he he grew up in a climate that was perfectly comfortable with using strange implements to receive individual revelation. I mean, he was a scryer. He looked into stones. Um, he He was familiar with people who used divining rods and other magic type implements. And so it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary for him to consider a lot of the mystical things that took place in his experience as being just completely normal. Yeah, that magical worldview was part of his context, his time and place. And it's very it's very much a part of his context of his time and place and, and informs his well, it's a worldview, right? It informs his way of seeing the world. And so the possibility of these magical implements and, and divination, that's part of his experience. And the reality of it is too. And so it's through that openness, I think, to that kind of possibility 
that he ends up in a divine encounter, right? The, the ultimate mystical experience of an experience of the divine. An experience that isn't unique to him, but it is an experience that he had and knew he had and could not deny, regardless of how many people were closed off to those experiences or just weren't having them or weren't sharing them, although there, are, there were others around him who were at that time. That was, that was, and there were restoration movements, there were visions, there were scriptures being produced. And yet he had that experience. And it is a mystical experience. It's an experience of the divine. And I would say one of the great testaments to the reality of the experience for him is just, you know, where things went after that. And like any fallible human, I think that Joseph Smith wrestled with how to implement the the directions that he received, the revelations that he received, and, and the translation of those from what is inherently a mystical, unspeakable type experience into some t- sort of systematic institutionalization of that experience for others to learn from is obviously difficult. So for Joseph Smith, who, you know, just like any human, he's got his faults and his foibles and and whatnot in his in his history, but yet we can look at this experience, particularly the first vision and and what came from that, and say that it was certainly a transformative experience and a critical juncture in the history of not only our church but like the world. Right? This is this is the basically the institutionalization of a of a new faith tradition that came as a result of this singular mystical experience, this transformative experience that came upon, came to Joseph Smith. And this wasn't the only one. He had several ecstatic type experiences uh, throughout his, throughout his ministry, including this, this massive revealing of angels and, and ancient prophets that came as a result of this Kirtland temple dedication. There was angelic visitations from the angel Moroni that came not Curiously, to me anyway, in his sleep, they came to him while he was sleeping. And I think that's one way to look at it and say, okay, this was, a, this was a, one of those nighttime visions that, again, I think people can relate to as being kind of mysterious and don't know what to make of them. That's all, I, could, I could also see that being referred to as mystical. So we've got this history of all these experiences that Joseph Smith had, and that's built into our faith tradition. That's there. That's part of it. And yet in the modern tradition that we practice today, a lot of the mystery, mysticism seems to have left, seems gone to me. Is it still there? Well, we don't hear about visions and and we don't have these new revelations in the same way, right? Part of that, doesn't it seem to you that like when you look at the how the first vision is described, at least in modern sources, everything about it is so material, and so is a lot of the other. So are a lot of the other mystical experiences that Joseph Smith had, and so we have this expectation that if we're going to have a spiritual experience, that it's going to be something that's very material. Right. The idea that if we were to experience the divine, that that would have to be with our eyes. Right. And yet it could be rather with spiritualized and actually has to be with spiritualized that we see God. We know that from, from the prophets themselves. 
you, you get the the sense from at least some of the the tellings of the first vision again these attempts to put into words what cannot actually be put into words that there's a physical manifestation and yet that physical manifestation as it were can only be perceived through spiritual eyes. Well, I love the phrase. I love that you're going that direction. The phrase that's used in the Book of Mormon to represent this is that the scales fell from their eyes. You ever read that? You remember that? That The scales fell from their eyes. It's almost as if we needed to take off the material expectation so that we could see with our true spiritual eyes that are attuned to that unless you put the filter on. There was an image used in our sister podcast, the Come Follow Me podcast from Latter-day Peace Studies, where, you know, as in the temple, they raise the the lights as you progress from kingdom to kingdom to represent a higher degree of light. And that makes sense. But the idea showed up in the podcast, wouldn't it be better if we actually wore a couple of pairs of sunglasses and took them off one at a time? And the reason being, right, that that the light is actually always there. We just don't perceive it. So you get the impression when they turn up the lights that somehow the light, the lighting has changed, when in reality, the scales have fallen from our eyes. We've taken off those sunglasses, and we're aware of that light that's already always there. Well, um, if anyone's listening up at church headquarters, this is a suggestion for a future edit to the, to the liturgy of the temple, right? <laughs> You can imagine going in and getting your sunglasses like when you go to the 3D movie. You get the special glasses. Well, who knows? Maybe uh, it'll happen, Chris. Maybe someone on the uh, the committee for, uh, what is it called? The committee for church doctrine or something is listening to this and you know making notes and putting them in our file. But they heard that idea, and it's going to get somewhere. I like it. <laughs> well, it's not original to me. All right. Well, so we've got all of these experiences that uh, we, we had in the early part of the Restoration. And yet, as you said earlier, what we have of those experiences, that written account, is not the experience itself. And the process of translating those inherently un- ineffable experiences into the written word is called reification. And that's a, that's a fairly recent new word, I guess. It's a, I think at first usage was sometime in the mid-19th century, but essentially it, it, it means to make concrete something that is, uh, is spiritual in nature. And Alan Watts said it best, reify means to thingify, to take something that is indescribable and make it a thing that we can relate it to and, and perhaps understand it in that way. We tend to work with concepts, you know, as human beings, and, and our language is conceptual. We want to be able to pin things down and point to them and participate in some sense with them at a level of concept. And so that's what reification is about, right, is to be able to pin down. They cannot be pinned down. Uh, they cannot be put into words exactly because they're beyond words. So, Christopher, could it be said that the church as we know it today, the administrative church with, with all of its handbooks and, and rules and whatnot, is essentially the thingification or the reification of Joseph Smith's and others, perhaps, ecstatic experiences? Yeah, definitely his and others, right? So we have continuing revelation, which we continue to try to put into words. We make these attempts, 
and and we see the development of this uh, through throughout the history of the church right that we continue to attempt to put our finger on exactly what it is that the lord would have us do and this is how i think a lot of religions progress over time in their evolution is they begin with some type of religious ecstatic experience, some really deep and mysterious uh, spiritual experience. And then that gradually settles into the formalism of reification, making all those ecstatic experiences concrete and understandable for a larger audience is a difficult thing. And so things become institutionalized, and that's essentially where you get uh religion and and the process or the evolution of our religion is is no exception to that rule it doesn't necessarily though invalidate the example or the need for a personal revelatory experience or individual communion at the, at the level of the individual having that same experience that joseph smith claimed to have with the divine would you agree with that yes that personal revelation is necessary because if the if the if the experience of the divine cannot be put into words and all it can do is point then we have to take those pointers and we have to look in that direction toward our own spiritual experience in a prior episode we spent a good amount of time highlighting the difference between symbols and the things they refer to and the mistake of making the symbol the thing that it's pointing to in other words idol worship right Right, and anything can become an idol. Even our idea of God, Jesus, the temple, anything can be made an idol. When we take the symbol as the referent, that's idolatry. We're actually going to dig into that exact thought later on in the, in the episode here. But for now, let's, let's look at mysticism just as a principle by itself. If we describe mysticism as the process or pursuit of divine oneness or communion— as we said earlier, that's something that's that's really a religious or a spiritual duty that hasn't gone away. The whole point of this of this religion thing, whether it's our religion or someone else's, is to have an experience of divine oneness, isn't it? To somehow commune or relate to our Creator God. We're to become one with the Father as Jesus became one with the Father. That's what he taught us. That's what Jesus taught us. But so often in institutional religion, that part of the spiritual practice is de-emphasized in favor of religious authority. And this is an attack necessarily on you know our latter-day prophets or modern-day leaders or whatever. It's more just, again, that process or evolution that religions go through when they move from mysterious, ecstatic experience into formalized institutions. Because in order to protect the the doctrines, the dogmas, and the practices that have been established, you have to you have to build walls and draw borders around things, right? You have necessarily a, contra- a construction of orthodoxy and heresy, right? What's what is orthodox, what is heterodox? what is inside, what is outside. I mean, if you have a church, who's, who's a member, who's not a member? What do you have to believe to be a member? At what point do you become a non-believer? All these questions come up, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting, though, that we still, there's still a celebration of spiritual experiences. Every 
every month we do this um, practice in in our church where we have a fast and testimony meeting and and random people from the congregation can stand up and bear their testimony. And many times you'll hear someone recount a spiritual experience that they had. And I think that is acceptable for for the leadership and for the general membership as long as it supports or upholds the existing structure or authority that has been constructed, the institution, in other words. But if someone were to get up there and say something that's just a little off, there's always this uneasiness that you can feel within the congregation that's listening, or or you almost have that secondhand embarrassment sometimes when when someone says something that is just outside the norm, right? Oh, I, I know this from personal experience. I mean, I've felt the awkwardness uh, at times when testifying of principles of nonviolence as taught by Jesus, where they're usually not understood the way that I understand them uh, within the tradition, right, within the, within the church, where there's more of an, an American nationalist way of thinking about things, an individualist way of thinking about things, versus my understanding of what Jesus taught, and if I share that testimony, then, you know, it's a little bit weird. And and yet I'm not going up against the church. I'm not, and that's understood too, right? Okay, that's his opinion. That's his experience. And I've had, when I say, you know, when you're sharing testimony, you're talking about an experience, right? You're testifying of an experience of the divine. I'm not just talking about my mental cogitations. My mental cogitations just what I'll call sitting with the ideas of nonviolence that Jesus taught and opening up a space for the possibility of them has brought me into contact with just an experience of a possibility that's beyond reason. That Because, of course, there, there's, there are these reasonable arguments of why that can't be. And, of course, you know, that can only be, there can only be nonviolence when Jesus violently destroys all violent people and then there's nonviolence. And that just to me, that doesn't make sense, and yet that seems to be, generally speaking, how it works for for members of the church. And so, there's a little bit of a difference between how I think and how everybody else around me seems to think, and so that produces that kind of awkward situation when I share, you know, my own experience from, you know, considering the possibility from being open to it. And it's been over years that this doctrine, that the doctrines of nonviolence that the Savior taught have distilled upon my soul. Well, I had a very similar experience when I, and I've shared this at times, and I won't go into too much detail, but essentially when I was praying to know whether I should join the church or not, I had kind of a visionary experience with the Savior. And I was told a couple of years later that, oh, you know, that's really not acceptable. Um, and I wish I could remember the exact words that were told to me, but essentially someone was saying that doesn't really follow the pattern that is that has been established by, by God. First, you should have a witness of the Spirit, and then you can have a witness of Jesus. And that just wasn't my experience. So someone was essentially telling me that that the experience that I had, this visionary experience, either didn't happen as I was recounting it, and I was a liar— or it was outside the boundaries of what God has established. And so again, we're talking about these walls and these boundaries and the awkwardness that that creates and how it limits the experiences that people can have. And that's that's the downside of having kind of the institutionalized spirituality is that 
the boundaries close in. And this was, I mean, it's true today in some respect, but it was also true back in the time of Joseph Smith. You remember the one account in Doctrine and Covenants where there was a member who also had his own seer stone and he he claimed to have received revelation. And he was shut down because there was only one person at any one time who has the authority to exercise these keys. Well, that's an example of the the institution basically shutting down someone else's experiences. For better or worse, I'm not claiming it's one way or the other. I mean, it obviously turned out that because that was shut down, that experience, we have this very orderly church that we have today. It's, I mean, everything kind of flows up hierarchically through the president and prophet of the church. And I'm not saying that isn't by by design. What I'm saying is, is that the natural consequence or repercussion of shutting down certain personal individual experiences is that people start to think, well, there's only one right way to do this or to receive this. And they might not even be aware of the experiences that they are having because they don't fit the mold. By the way, was it suggested perhaps then that uh, that you were told to join the church by the devil? And if so, ha- having joined, I guess, all's well that ends well, right? Well, that reminds me of the uh, the Pharisees that were accusing Christ of, of healing by Beelzebub. Right. Uh, you know, you don't do good things under evil influence. You know, I mean, you just, that, that doesn't make sense. A house divided against itself will fall, right? So I think what this institutionalization of experience has done to people in some respect has created this, I, I think it's more of a modern problem than one that existed 150 years ago or so in the early restoration, but it certainly exists now where there's many in the church who can flat out tell you, I've never had a spiritual experience. I've never had communion with the divine. And and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we've defined that in such a way that it has to fit within this narrow box or this narrow window of, of experience. So someone who says that, it may be because they've never felt a burning in the bosom or they've never heard a voice or experienced a vision. Um, they've never had a, a any kind of communication that just kind of shocked them into action. And I've, I've heard that from multiple people. I know that's an issue sometimes with missionaries as well, that they're trying to teach people how to, how to have a spiritual experience, and yet they've never had one themselves that they can recognize. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, I, I can say I've spoken of, of experiences of hearing a voice, you know, meaning I felt to do something. And see, again, their language fails, right? Did I hear a voice? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sitting at my desk and I'm not thinking about doing anything to do with what the voice tells me to do. And the voice tells me to go do this thing. And yet it's not a voice. Yet it is. You just can't talk about it. There's just no way to put into words. It's not this audible voice, and yet it's it's felt in the same way, right? I like to I like to point out that um, at this point that to the verb to feel is the verb that's used in um, in Italian for to hear. At least it's cognate with the. I'm pretty sure it's the same verb, right? It's the 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 feeling part of it is cognate with Spanish, and. And yet it also, I think it still means to feel in Italian, but it also is the word that they use to hear. Sounds are felt. Well, because the experiences have have sort of been bordered 
and the way that we can receive spiritual communication has been clearly defined. When we fall outside of those those borders, we we might either write them off or say that that's coming from a source that we don't want to accept information from or accept communion with. And so for those people who are struggling with that challenge, God remains for them distantly relegated to a space outside of them, somewhere up there or out there or hanging out on the planet Kolob, as we like to say in the church, which is just kind of funny. It's half joking, half not, I guess. But really, Jesus teaches us that God is abiding in the kingdom within. And so the the at least a partial answer or or a possible solution to this issue is are these ideas of of mysticism and, and mystery that we're introducing here is that there's there are other ways to access this and maybe other ways to receive other than the formulaic prayer, the singing of hymns and studying my scriptures, kind of the the primary answers. There may be other ways here. I do think that there are other ways and I and I think, you know, when you say that how we can receive communion with the divine, how we can experience the divine has been defined. I, I don't know that you really meant to say that, that, that that's the case. It, it is true, of course, that we've gotten the impression that, that these are the only ways, right? That X, Y, Z ways are the ways that, that we do that. But is there really anything that says that we cannot experience the divine in other ways? Are we the ones limiting ourselves in our experience by understanding of what has been said or what has been taught to us as examples. So when we're given examples, we should not necessarily think that they're the only possibilities. And there and there are the examples that are sort of the go-to examples, right? That you hear over and over again. But and and it's interesting too because you have talk of meditation and yet and prayer and meditation, right? And yet that that idea of meditation doesn't always strike me in hearing it in in you know in the context of a church meeting as what I practice as meditation, which is a, a form of transcendental meditation. It's more like pondering, right? And yet we talk about pondering and we talk about meditation. And so these things aren't being defined. And so they're open to our own definition, I think. I, I think that, that it's possible for us to understand them in our own unique way and to seek outside of whatever examples have been given and whatever um, definition is given to the examples or whatever definition we might, you know, read between the lines of, of an example, and we should be open to any experience of the divine. Yeah, I agree completely. And I, I think def- defining the issues is a big problem in and of itself. When when pondering is confused with meditation, that severely limits what meditation is. If you take as the definition of meditation to be pondering, right? Because um, pondering, you can you can consider as just as easily being thinking about a math problem or something. Um, but meditation, there, I mean, you can have many forms of meditation, from the extremely formal types of meditation to informal meditation. And by just calling it pondering, is isn't really doing it justice. And and so I think expanding the scope of these definitions is important to do. Well, if we, we can take the discussion even further back and. I think this is instructive for us because in in the ancient scriptures, the, the Torah and the Hebrew scriptures, they actually teach us quite a lot about the nature of God. And if we're going to use mysticism as a tool, mysticism, again, defined as an experience of communion with the divine, 
if we're going to look for ancient examples that not only this existed, but this this was the primary means of, of communication with God, we can find this in the Torah. We have the the commandment given, the second commandment of the ten that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, which is to not have any graven images. And, and most rabbinic scholars and teachers understand that to be uh, a uh, warning against idolatry, a commandment against idolatry. And that may have been referring to most ancient societies have in their temples, you know, these these sculptures or figurines or something that they pay their devotion or worship to. And maybe it's just a vehicle for, you know, pointing their minds and intention toward the God. But nevertheless, that there is this commandment and the reason for it was a, a restriction against idol worship. And I think one of the reasons why this specific commandment is given is because God wants us really to understand that humans are created in his likeness and image. And we are his temple and image. I mean, as, as Paul says that we are the temple of God, plural, you all are the temple of God, he's really pointing us towards this idea that being in God's image and in his likeness, that we can find God best in his crowning creation, which is humankind. There's an interesting idea in this, Riley, that the that the ecclesia, which is the gathering of the saints, the, the Christians, are the body of Christ collectively, that that God's body is us. We're God's body. That's such an interesting idea. And it's maybe a little foreign to Latter-day Saints who are used to the idea that was very specifically outlined in the, the first vision account in Joseph Smith history that there were these beings floating above the air that encountered that Joseph Smith encountered. One was the father, one was the son. And, and so we get this, this mental image, this picture of these two material bodies, and then it's taught within our doctrine and theology that they have a body of flesh and bones. And so we, we take and we frame that conversation around a, a very restrictive understanding about God in as much to say that it's it can't it's it's an either or type proposition it's not a both and so while right. god might have a body of flesh and bones that doesn't restrict the image and likeness of god and his best expression for humankind to be humankind itself it just says that god is a being essentially but that's not all he is i think that there's so much more to god that we can comprehend and put into words and that if we you know if we have a god that can fit into a box and if you and if you insist on on the only truth that there is to the, the only thing that you can say about god is that god is embodied that now god fits in a box called a coffin and god is dead to us and that he's in yonder heavens in kolob as you know john taylor or wilford woodruff said if that's all you know about God, then that's so limited, right? Yeah, and part of, you know, so the mystery of God is gone, and this whole conversation is about mystery, right? The, the mystery and mysticism are connected. These things that cannot be expressed in words that are ineffable, they are not, they don't fit in a box. They don't fit in a coffin. They don't fit in any other kind of box or body. They're so much bigger than all of that. And I think God is all of that, regardless of whether he is embodied. 
Well, and that really points us back to that second commandment again. If you are to construct or or carve out a figurine or a statue, God doesn't fit in that statue. It, it may be something that calls to mind God, but God is not that thing. And so I think what we're what we're being pointed to is is to take that thought out of us to say that the thing being represented as God is not God. It's bigger than that. And so where can, we can really go wrong is to fall into idolatry by making our idea of God or God's body or what have you an idol. Our very idea of God can be an idol. If, if the temple, the temple can become an idol. The temple is supposed to be a place that where we experience the divine. But if we make it all about the temple itself, then again, that's an idol. And so we can make anything really into an idol. And nobody's, we're not making uh, statues. That's not the issue. Uh, the issue is the the black idol, as, as we call the, the TV sometimes, or the, or even again, something that is part of our religious experience, our own experience of what Jesus means can become an idol. When, when the religion of Jesus becomes about Jesus, as Alan Watts put it, it loses power. The real power is in the religion of Jesus. Making Jesus an idol just puts us right back with the ancient Israelites, doesn't it? Well, I would take something you said earlier and maybe even go a step further and make it maybe even a little controversial and say that our image or idea of God is idolatry. It just is, because we are trying to limit God to what we believe God is. We're putting him in a box. Exactly. So if we're really open to an experience of all that God is, we have to be willing to let go of any preconceived notion whatsoever right? and be open to receiving what? I don't know. Right? And that, that is scary, isn't it? Well, that's the mystery. That's the mystery. Yeah. And so in our way of talking about God in our theology, we've denuded God of mystery and we think we just have it all figured out, right? We have God all figured out and there's nothing, no wonder we're not having the experience of the divine that, that, that we're missing. We're just having the experience of our idea of the divine and that's pretty unsatisfying. It's only part of the reality that is God that is so much bigger than any concept that we can fit into our brains or into our minds, or into any box. So going back again to this second commandment, by keeping us squarely focused on humankind as the image and likeness of God, he moves us to communion with God within, the esoteric experience of God, and the gods among us, our neighbors, which is the exoteric or outer experience of God. And so if you have, the, you have this experience where a learned Jew comes to Jesus and he says, Master, what is the great commandment? And he says, the greatest commandment is to love God. And he, and he says, the second great commandment is like unto it, meaning it is similar. It's the same. Okay, so if I was to ask you, what does it mean to love God? Well, you're going to say, well, it's to do this, this, and this, to worship, to obey, to pray, to read the scriptures, blah, 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 blah. It's all those things. It's the checkbox is is. But that's not what but Jesus that's said. that's not what Jesus said. What he's saying is how you love God is in how you treat your neighbor, and you should treat your neighbor as yourself because it's like loving God. It's like unto it. 
So the second commandment is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's so interesting that he says as yourself, because not only is God his likeness and image in others, your neighbors, but he's in you as well. So he And as it says in Psalms 82, ye are gods. Right. Another quote that Jesus shares with his disciples. I'd love to share a quote from C.S. Lewis at this point. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Wow. These people that surround us are gods. It is in, it is in loving them that we love God. And we have a hard time with that, Riley, because we don't, we don't see ourselves as gods, and we know that they're just like us, right? And we take the worst part of people's nature and, and make that their identity. Right. And this is where the other quote that we have to share comes in, right? Would you like to read that one? Yeah. So the first one is, is the outer experience. That's the exoteric treatment or communion with God, which is how you deal with your neighbors, these other gods among us. And this next one is all about the esoteric and how we deal with ourselves and the God within us. So this one's from Marianne Williamson. She says, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Wow. That's loving yourself as you would love others, to put it in reverse. That's powerful. Such powerful ideas. So this, both these esoteric and exoteric experiences of God are found in his creation, us, humankind. And so I love this next quote that we're going to share, which wraps them both into one and says, you don't have to go somewhere to find God. Basically, God's all around us. Do you want to read this next one? Yes, this is from St. Teresa of Avila. You need not go to heaven to see God, nor need you speak aloud as if God were far away nor need you cry for wings like a dove to fly to him. Only be in silence, and you will come upon God within yourself. All difficulties in prayer come from praying as if God were absent. I love that last line. All difficulties in prayer come from praying as if God were absent. God's not absent. God is present. Yeah, if, if he's out there so far away and, you know, enthroned in yonder heavens, 
Then he's not in here. Then, then he's not here. And how do we know that he's listening? Like, how can we actually have that communion, that divine experience, if, if God's just out there? Be still and know that you are God. How do you like that, that rephrasing of the scripture? It's true. Be still and know that I am God. Yeah, I think people can start to become uncomfortable with this idea because they sure. don't want to ascribe to God the errancy, the the capacity for evil, the mistakes that we make. We don't want to make those gods. We want to own those ourselves, which again is a dangerous thing because if we don't give those up, then they're, you know, it's difficult to be at one, right? That's what the atonement's really about. It's not, it's not about finding propitiation for our, for our sins and forgiveness that way. It's about alignment. It's about being aligned with our best true self, which is the God within. And so I think we, we have a little fear of this, this idea that, that we are gods for that reason. Yeah, you know, that scripture from Psalms 82 was quoted by Jesus when, you know, he was called out for saying he's the son of God as a blasphemer. And he just says, guys, Psalms 82, your scriptures say ye are gods. And then he says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your, your father in heaven is perfect. And, and in the Book of Mormon we have, after the resurrection, even as I am perfect. He's asking us to be one with him as he is one with the father. This is a realization of our own divinity. This is taking off the sunglasses and seeing yourself. This is repentance. Seeing yourself and seeing God as you and God are. So anyone who's spent any time in this kind of esoteric tradition of mysticism, where we're looking for and seeking communion with the God within and seeing that in our neighbors as well, Within the LDS faith, if, you're, if you've experienced this esoteric tradition, I'm sure you've come ac- across this next quote by David O. McKay. And I'm on, I want to read it because it, it calls to mind for me so many truths about God that we can, we can kind of discuss this after I'm done. It says, I think we pay too little attention to the value of meditation, a principle of devotion. In our worship, there are two elements. One is spiritual communion arising from our own meditation— the other instruction from others, particularly from those who have authority to guide and instruct us. Of the two, the more profitable introspection is the meditation. Meditation is the language of the soul. It is defined as a form of private devotion or spiritual exercise, consisting in deep continued reflection on some religious theme. Meditation is a form of prayer. Meditation is one of the most secret, most sacred doors through which we pass into the presence of the Lord. And I want to focus in on that last line because it relates directly to something that Jesus himself taught his disciples. Meditation is one of the most secret, most sacred doors through which we pass into the presence of the Lord. Now the imagery he used there of the door and passing into the presence of the Lord is is similar to me to when Jesus was teaching his disciples about prayer. And when he said, when you pray, do not as the hypocrites who pray on the street corners and want to be heard of men. He says, instead, go into your closet and shut the door. 
and let prayer be between you and God. And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's how I remember it. So he's using the imagery of the closet and shutting the door and going into that inward place where only he and God reside. And there is your prayer or meditation if you if you have it. I mean, David O. McKay says meditation is prayer. It's a form of prayer. And so when Jesus says that, he's pointing to the inward soul, right? The closet inside. Yeah, it has to be because in the time that he's saying this and, and you know, given his audience, that's the only way to understand this. There is no closet in their house. There aren't even rooms. It's, a, it's one room and everybody shares a common space. That closet has to be understood as the inner sanctum, the inner fortress. There's also the idea of the Jews praying by covering their heads, right? Covering your head in that way brings you into that sacred space. When you pray, you enter into sacred space and into sacred time as you're communing with the sacred, right? With the divine. You know, something else stood out to me, Riley, in that quote from President McKay. The other, in addition to meditation, he says, is the instruction from others, particularly from those who have authority to guide and instruct us. Now that authority, if we we can think of that in an idolatrous way, as someone who is in a position in a hierarchy above us. Or we can think of it in terms of what authority, one of the meanings of authority, at least, is this idea that someone who speaks from authority is someone who has their own experience. So if we're looking to commune with the divine, and, and President McKay is giving us two ways, one is through meditation, the other is instruction from those who have authority, those who have authority better be speaking from an authority of an actual experience not just from a position in a hierarchy, right? If we, if we understand that, if we're looking to, to someone who has experience of the divine, then we can receive from that experience through the Spirit, we can get some kind of access to, because it's going to point us, again, no words that those people with that authority have can, can actually substitute for our own experience, but we can follow those words, the trail that they leave, the direction they point, to our own experience of the divine. And this is the the idea of having a mentor or a guru or someone that can kind of point the way who has credibility because they have experienced it themselves, right? So this this master and even in non non-spiritual, non-religious teaching, I mean this is this is the master apprentice model. Yes. And that was the model for all traditional right. teaching secular or otherwise. And even so, President McKay says that of these two, the the more profitable is definitely doing it yourself and having the experience yourself. Right. It has to be. And yet it's valuable to have the structure and the, the mentor and the opportunity to learn from others, but it can't actually substitute for our own experience. We have to be looking for that experience in, you know, through to, to let that external structure just give us a path, right? To point the path, to point to the path to that own inner experience. The other part of President McKay's quote that I loved is this phrase, the presence of the Lord. Because, I mean, this is very clear if you, if you really parse it out, what he's talking about here. He says, meditation is the method that you use to get through into the presence of the Lord, right? Well, meditation is an esoteric practice. He's not talking about the literal, physical, material presence of Jesus Christ. 
he's talking about a spiritual practice of communion that is, it's mystical. This is mysticism. So when he says presence of the Lord, he's speaking about God within, the kingdom of God within, and that you get to commune with God within that closet or that inner sanctum of your heart. So this, again, this presence of the Lord is not some literal transport to some faraway place where God resides in body. It's introspection. It's looking inward. President McKay used that word, introspection. Back to St. Teresa of Avila, only be in silence and you will come upon God within yourself. As Jesus taught us, the kingdom of God is within you. So there's this other aspect of mysticism, Christopher, that we want to discuss, and that is the unitary experience as opposed to duality. It comprehends the unity of all creation. And while as humans, we have this tendency, whether inherited or whatnot, from Adam and Eve of seeing things in in dualisms as good and evil, virtue and vice, and so forth, mysticism is about viewing and experiencing these things as one, as, as a singular, unitary experience. Yeah, to realize that, that we can be one with the Father, even as Jesus was one with the Father or is one with the Father, and to realize that all of existence and all truth can be circumscribed into one great whole to realize that we're not separate from God, that as St. Teresa pointed out, that all problems with prayer start with the idea that, that you're somehow separate from God, that, that God is not present when he is. And to take it back a step into what Jesus was teaching us about the great commandments, that the human family isn't separate, that we also are one, that we are one great nuclear family all together. And eventually the great plan of a heavenly father's family is to all be sealed together as a single unit. And so if we start to look at the sealing ordinance as the mystical union of all individuals in the human family as one, uh, it takes on a little more significance in terms of, in terms of just the love of God for all of his children. Definitely. That's what it's all about. That's what it was understood to be from the beginning of the restoration was to make all of us one family, to seal us all together as one family, not just me and my immediate family and my ancestors, but all of us as Bene Adam, all of us as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. I actually see this as being a possible solution to the conundrum we face in modern days with, you know, LGBTQ involvement in the church and what's their place and all this. I think eventually we get to a place where we start to see what the symbol is referring to in the temple ceiling. Because I really look at that in a mystical sense as the ceiling of the divine feminine and all of those attributes that are part of that with the divine masculine and all of its attributes. And we need to do an episode on this, Christopher. I think there's a lot of depth to those ideas of of the mystical divine feminine and divine masculine. And I think that would shed a lot of light on this as well. Absolutely. And one that, that deals with these things in a, non, in a non-dualistic way. So going through this whole discussion, someone might come out of this and say, why do we have religion at all? If it's just kind of 
a shell or an incomplete representation of that mystical divine experience or communion with God, why do we have the religion at all? What's the experience we're meant to have is is an this individual transformative mystical experience. So what's what's the point of religion? You know, the outer experience it gives us a track to run on. We we did a whole episode on this, right? One of the one of the episodes that I usually point people new to this conversation to, which is on the esoteric and the exoteric. I don't remember the exact title, but it's something like that. The the exoteric gives us the track to run on. We have the covenant path, but going through the motions and just ticking off the boxes isn't going to get us there. So there's the outer experience of that track and that covenant path, and there's the inner experience of the deeper meaning of these things. And we need both. I think that's so important to highlight. I mean, again, we've said it in this episode multiple times. We've said it in many past episodes, but the we have this tendency to confuse the symbol with the referent. And in in the religious orthodoxy and all the practice and checkbox and all the things that come along with that, the covenant path, the ordinances, all that stuff, you know, someone who is just wanting to bypass that can certainly get away with it. There's all, there's this whole group of people that describe themselves as spiritual, not religious. And, you know, maybe they just have a grander vision for things than I do. But for me, it was certainly helpful and it still continues to be helpful to have a reminder, a frequent reminder of what those spiritual practices can refer to and the potential for the communion that can come from them when you have that deeper vision of what all of those practices symbolize. You know, again, for instance, we can point to the temple and which is a completely symbolic liturgy and practice. And you can walk in the temple and you can do it from the standpoint of, of duty and just, you know, doing what you're supposed to and, oh, I went to the temple this month. Good for me. Check that box off. Or you can go into the temple wanting to have an experience with the divine through the symbols that refer to the divine or point to the divine. And without the opportunity to do that, we almost have to invent one, right? We And that's why people who are spiritual but not religious per se, they still have the things, <laughs> You know, whether it's meditation or whether it's, you know, maybe they've got their their singing bowl like I've got in my office that puts me in the right frame of mind. But all of these things are just the things. They're not the experience. Yeah, what you're saying reminds me of a recent section of the Doctrine and Covenants we studied in the, following the Come, Follow Me curriculum in, in the year of the that we're recording this. And that is that that no unclean thing can enter the temple and that if any unclean thing enters the temple that that there's no ex, there's no presence of god there and so what you're pointing to is preparing ourselves because that cleanliness that's spoken of is a ritual cleanliness not a moral cleanliness the moral cleanliness of course is an important part of that that exoteric part of preparing ourselves for that esoteric path but the ritual cleanliness that's required of us to go into the temple means that mental preparation. And in fact, interestingly, one of the, one of the ordinances that, that takes place, for example, in Muslim prayer before canonical prayers, there's washings. And, and this is for ritual cleanliness, not for physical cleanliness. We actually have something like that in the washings and anointings that are at the beginning of the temple practice or the temple experience. 
but they happen inside the temple. Isn't that interesting that that occurs already inside the temple? And yet that's one of the preparatory steps to the work that's done in the temple. And so we have to prepare ourselves. We have to take going to the temple seriously and prepare ourselves mentally. And there's again that symbolism of washings and anointings, whether we go through that every time we go to the temple or not. Again, mentally we can prepare by remembering these symbols that point us the way to being ritually clean so that we can be in the presence of God in the temple. So I think we can both agree that there's there's value in the exoteric and the esoteric, as we've expressed in that prior episode you mentioned, but that of the two, perhaps, as President McKay said, the more profitable is is the esoteric, is to have that divine experience yes, yourself. And That's what it's all pointing to, right? Indeed, it is. And, and I don't know exactly what you meant to say by that were people who could get away with shortcutting that. Maybe I misunderstood you. I'd love for you to respond to that. But, you know, the idea that that some people have out there that you can get to nirvana, right, that you can get access to the divine just by meditating when you haven't actually, when you don't have the exoteric practices of a moral life. At the same time, the inverse applies. If we just go through the outer practices and we don't do the inner work that President McKay was pointing us to, and that Jesus was pointing to and pointing out that the kingdom of God is within us, then we don't. Then that outer, that outer shell is empty. It's an empty shell, as the Sufis put it. Yeah, and I think what I was getting at is that there are probably people out there who think they've already internalized all the principles of the exoteric practice. They don't really have any need to follow any of the the rules or strictures or or covenant paths or checkboxes, whatever they might call them or refer to them as, and that they're just beyond that. And so now they just want the full spiritual esoteric practice by itself. Um, I think that takes a significant amount of training to get to that point. And personally, I, I don't want to be without the constant reminder of where these things point and that there's a purpose for going there. I mean, a lot of times we get so caught up in our daily lives that we just completely forget to pay any heed to the practice. And so it it can be very easy to fall out of that. And I just know far too many people who are completely devoid of all exoteric religious practice, and eventually it just becomes insignificant for them to participate any longer because they've just fallen out of the practice. So I think there's a need for both. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that, Riley. I think we're both saying the same thing. Yeah, you really do need both. You need that outer shell and yet the inner kernel is the point of the outer shell. And we ought not lose sight of that. I mean, we get, we have way too much focus currently, I mean, as a church, as as membership combined on the outer shell practices. And it's really time that we started looking inward and finding that kernel of, of truth and communion with the divine. And I, I hope that this episode has led our listeners to that realization of how important it is to have divine experience at the individual level and the importance of mysticism. Yeah, that's what this conversation has been about, dear listener, and that is what this podcast is about. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week. 